listening to the Keeping It Juicy podcast. You made squeezing nutrition. Don't forget to subscribe so you can join us every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And add us on Facebook and Instagram at Keeping It Juicy Podcast. All right. Hello and welcome to episode 15. Yes. Welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) Again, we're doing the accents, I guess. But before we start, I just want to apologize for all of the background noise that I know you're going to hear. About five minutes before um, we started recording, I found out that we were going to have our countertops installed, and there's no way that we can reschedule um, recording this podcast or getting the countertops installed so it's gonna be a little bit noisy so we're basically breaking bad it <laughs> basically yeah we're the we're the breaking bad version of podcasters minus the meth <laughs> exactly maybe just a little bit of sugar that's our drug of choice oh yeah. but, but let's just dive right into our new nutrition in the news segment for this week so I'm sure you guys already, at least those that follow me on Dietetics Anonymous, you already have some sort of clue into this because it just happened. I found out that CVS, a local pharmacy, uh, I, I guess a pharmacy store, whatever, they decided they have something called the Minute Clinic. And they, they essentially created this weight loss program, um, which is all fine and dandy. But the thing about these weight loss programs is they're having a nurse practitioner facilitate the whole process. So if you go onto their website, which we'll attach in the show notes, practitioners only see those that are 18 years or older, which is fine and dandy. There's no appointment necessary. You sign in at the, at the electronic kiosk to see a nurse practitioner. Right. And the practitioner you're assigned to will perform a risk assessment. They'll check your vital signs. They'll measure your body mass index and waist circumference. Uh, If you haven't listened to our episode on BMI, go back and listen to that one to hear why we think that is not the best um, way to assess health. But waist circumference is definitely better. So I'm glad they're doing both and not just BMI. Mm-hmm. But basically, during this consultation, your practitioner will review your lifestyle goals and your physical health. So the practitioner will also create a personalized plan to help you lose weight and improve your overall health, which I already have a problem with because they're not supposed to be giving out <laughs> personalized diet plans. But anyways... Um, They say that the website says that the key to success is the ongoing support. So sometimes they do have follow-up visits that include personalized coaching, quotation marks, if you you can't see me, but that's what I'm doing, (laughs) and medical evaluation, which I get why you need a nurse practitioner for that, to help you with your weight loss journey. The number of follow-up visits will be based on each person's, each individual need. Right. And I... I'm happy that they're focusing on, you know, support, but I don't think that a nurse practitioner is the best person to go for that. Mm -mm. Anyways, at the end of the visit, uh, the practitioner will provide you with the summary, receipt, and any education materials that you might need. 
and the summary of your visit can actually be sent to your primary care provider with their permission. So they even, they put, I remember on their website, they put a little star next to the nurse practitioner. I was like, okay, maybe they put, or a dietitian, but no, I went down to the bottom page. It said some states allow physicians' assistants to do this instead, which is fucking fantastic, I guess. Not really. That's very sarcastic. But yeah, I thought they would include dietitians, but no, either physician assistants or dietitians are doing it. I mean, um, nurse practitioners are doing it, which I was trying to talk to some of my followers uh, to try to figure out why are they just doing this. And for those of you that don't know, especially for those of you that are the country are not familiar with this insurance um, called Medicare and Medicare is a government insurance and there are specific diagnosis codes that health practitioners use to get reimbursement back on their services. And apparently, a certain diagnosis code, especially for weight loss or health counseling, apparently excludes dietitians, which I've been told by some of my followers that might be the main driver of this decision to have nurse practitioners and physician's assistants do it instead of dietitians. I could see that. Well, I could see that too, but at the same time, they're trying to push an act through Congress right now to have dietitians included because we study nutrition, we counsel on weight loss. I mean, you give us reimbursement codes for, they let us have our services reimbursed for when your kidneys fails or when you go through weight loss surgery, but not for general health. That doesn't really make sense in my eyes. Exactly. But- Another... Welcome to America. <laughs> <laughs> this is America. Listen, listen to Childish Cambino. <laughs> exactly. But an, another follow of mine did point out apparently CVS is starting to introduce RDs in the local Houston area in southeast Texas. So I don't know how that happened. Um, that's still a mystery to me. Just stay tuned, I guess, on my Dietetics Anonymous. How I don't know. This is yeah, we'll keep you we'll keep you updated on how this story kind of unfolds. But it sounds like it's it's just a new thing. So there's probably going to be a lot of changes happening. But I do think the whole point of it, you know, the Minute Clinic is very readily av- available to a lot of people. So it is nice that they're having um, like nutrition advice available that readily, but I do think they need to fine tune how the nutrition information is actually delivered and by who. Oh, absolutely. And I definitely don't think a nurse practitioner should be doing that because I've had a handful of patients that are nurses that come to me like that they tell me oh, I'm diabetic, but I definitely know how to handle everything. And I'm like, dude, your blood sugar is like 393. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Commenting right. on that, some of my, <laughs> some of my, I mean, I've worked with a lot of weight loss clients and my most stubborn clients are nurses. Always, <laughs> man. Nurses, nurses and teachers are the toughest type of client to work with. So just just a thought. That's just our experience. There's definitely no, you know, hate going towards that. But it's just something that I've noticed. You guys are just some interesting folks. (laughs) (laughs) 
So let us know what you think about that. Again, we will link this article in on our website and in our bio once this episode is released. But let's jump right into the, the bulk of our episode, which is all about allergies and tolerances and an allergy test that uh, me and the RD did. And then we're just going to discuss our results and what we think about it. So let's jump right into what is an allergy. So an allergy is a damaging immune response that the body does in reaction to a substance. So the main thing to note about an allergy is it is an immune response. The body will literally view this substance as foreign and it recruits the immune system. This is usually histamine and immunoglobin E to attack it. So allergies elect an immune response. That is the number one takeaway. And the main symptom of an allergy are hives, runny nose, trouble breathing, or anaphylaxis. Uh, And all of these symptoms, mostly anaphylactis, can be severe and it can be deadly. It just depends how how much the your body views the substance as um, foreign. Mm -hmm. So most people who have an allergy usually will carry an EpiPen with them. And this is basically just an injectable device that is, um, the generic term is epinephrine. So this medication acts on the whole body to shut down the allergic response. It will constrict the blood vessels, leading to an increase in blood pressure and decrease in swelling. And basically what it will do is it relaxes the muscles around the airway, causing the lungs to open up. And it prevents the release of more allergic chemicals, which stop the progression of the allergic response. And epinephrine is the best um, medication that works on the entire body, and it works in multiple like organs, so depending where you're having the allergic response, which is why it's the main drug of choice if you have a true allergy. The top allergens do include either food or environmental. In regards to food, I'm sure a whole lot of you guys heard this. Milk is a common allergen. Eggs, fish, shellfish, tree nuts peanuts, wheat, and soybeans. In regards to the environmental aspect, dust mites, pollen, pet dander, mold, and definitely cigarette smoke. Yeah, those are those are big ones. Mm-hmm. So there are a few theories as to why people have been developing more allergies lately. One of the main theories behind why allergies are on the rise is the hygiene theory. So according to the hygiene theory hypothesis, the decreasing incidence of infections in Western countries like the U.S. and more recently in developing countries is because the increasing incidence of both autoimmune and allergic diseases. So the hygiene hypothesis is based on epidemiological data, particularly migration studies, And they actually show that the subjects migrating from a low incidence to a high incidence acquire immune disorders with a high incidence at the first generation. So this basically means if you're migrating from somewhere with a low incidence of allergens and then you migrate to somewhere with a high incidence, the first generation of migrants will definitely develop more of these immune disorders once they've migrated. So there's something to be said about that, and the data does show a correlation between high disease incidence and high socioeconomic level, but it does not cause a causal link, 
between immune disorders and the proof or the principle behind the hygiene theory is brought by animal models and by a lesser degree intervention in human trials. And kind of the basis of the hygiene theory is that, you know, in more developed countries, Western countries, we use so much antibacterial this, antibacterial that. We're, we're all a bunch of like germaphobes and we basically don't develop our immune system as strongly as it should be, which makes us more at risk to develop autoimmune diseases as generations go on. So long story short, just let your kid run around in the mud. Exactly. You know, it's <laughs> honestly, it probably is very helpful. <laughs> let them let them eat the bugs. Let them play in the dirt. Unless okay. it's unless the bugs poisonous. Anyways. <laughs> right. Right. So the next theory that I wanna to touch upon is the farm theory, which I didn't even really know about this until recently. I actually find it pretty hilarious. The farm theory, actually also known as the farming effect, is uh, basically a phenomenon that farm kids are protected against allergies and other disease. There was actually a, a recent research article that did come out talking about children who were exposed to farm life from birth to age five that were tested for allergies. And they were compared to other children who did not live on a farm from ages one to five. But apparently the most protected of these two children were the ones that lived on the farm from basically their birth until the age of five, and they had less than 1% either developing asthma or hay fever. Some people, such as Vaughn Mutis and some of our colleagues, even go so far as to say that this farming effect actually takes place before the baby is even born. So oftentimes in the traditional farming community, women continue to do chores during and throughout their pregnancy, spending much more time in the barn and around the cattle. So this exposure to the protective stimuli already starts in utero, and the first two years in life are apparently considered the most important. Of course, there's more research that needs to be done on this topic, but so far that's what the studies are being shown. Mm-hmm. which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, the whole immune system is very interesting. And, you know, when when you study the immune system, it's very complex. But when they, when they raise sterile rats, meaning, you know, the rats, when they're born in the lab and they mm-hmm. keep, them, keep them isolated and they don't develop an immune system, they die. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Oh, you, yeah. You need exposure to some bad things to build up your immune system <laughs> so, <laughs> like that one lab rat compared to that one fucker in the sewer that just won't die <laughs> right right <laughs> so one thing i do want to mention that a lot of people get confused is gluten gluten intolerance gluten allergy and celiac disease so i just want to touch on celiac disease Celiac disease is an autoimmune disease where the body does see gluten as foreign, and it truly only affects about 1% of the population. So gluten does get a really bad reputation. This episode is not about gluten, but I do want to just touch on that 
people that do truly have celiac disease, it is a very serious disease. And it is an autoimmune disease. It's not just like, oh, I want to stop eating gluten because I want to lose weight. No, it, th- these people can die if they eat gluten. It literally tears up their intestines and they can't absorb other nutrients. So it is serious. It's not just some fad <laughs> diet. Celiac disease is very, very serious. And it does affect about 1% of the population. But you definitely hear more than 1% of the population saying that they have to avoid gluten. So just wanted to touch on that. So wherever there's pain, you can make money. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So with that being said, there is the celiac disease. There's also something called gluten intolerance. So what is an intolerance? A food intolerance or food sensitivity occurs when a person has difficulty digesting a particular food, there is no immune response, okay? Compared to an actual allergy, there is no immune response, no nothing. So this is often confused between an intolerance. Uh, The reaction time usually isn't as immediate as it is with food allergies. Usually the body just lacks a specific enzyme, which can cause GI distress, other symptoms are headaches, runny nose, acid reflux, bloating, general distress symptoms. The most common example is actually a lactose intolerance. So this is due to the lack of lactase enzyme, also equaling to the lactose intolerance, which I feel like I have a little bit. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, I'm sure everyone knows someone with lactose intolerance. But the top intolerances, the the number one is dairy. And uh, like the RD mentioned, this is either lack of the lactase enzyme or just not enough. So Mm -hmm. either or, it's kind of hard to test. And then gluten is a big one. Like I mentioned, keep in mind, celiac disease and gluten intolerance are very different. And then another big intolerance that people have is intolerance to amines. And this is when you're lacking the enzymes diamine oxidase and N-methyltransferase. And amines are produced by bacteria during food storage and fermentation. And amines are found in a wide variety of foods. So these foods are, you know, you can use common sense fermented food, cured and smoked meats and cheeses, and then actually in some uh, citrus fruits. So if you do have... If you think you have an amine allerg- or, um, intolerance, just avoid those foods. And uh, there are a lot of types of amines, but histamine is the one that's most frequently associated with food-related intolerances. So some of the theories behind why we develop intolerances. So one, some believe that intolerances develop during pregnancy. Also, genetics can play a huge part. So, for example, 74% of African Americans do have lactose intolerance. Sweden's, actually, Sweden's lactose intolerance is one of the lowest at 4%. So, this is, <laughs> so this is likely due to many generations of cultural food. I just thought that was funny. Um, yeah. And then the next one is age. So, enzyme production actually decreases or actually changes as you age. And avoidance of a food for a certain period of time can make it challenging to digest it once it is reintroduced into the system. Right. And I just want to expand on that one a little bit. When I was like 
dieting for my show, I really didn't eat a lot of dairy. And it definitely took my body a few weeks to, you know, comfortably. There was probably a lot of other things going on too, but dairy was definitely sensitive. So Mm -hmm. likely while I was prepping, because I was prepping for five months, my body stopped producing lactase because it didn't need it. Your body's not going to produce something if it doesn't need it. So when I started eating, you know, all foods again, my body had to, you know, start producing lactase again. So Hmm. just, just something to think about. And if you have any suspicion that you have an intolerance, an elimination diet is really the best way to go. Elimination diet just means avoid that food for a specific amount of time. And I hear, I hear different things in elimination diets. Um, RD, do you have a, an exact length of time that? Uh, I, I know it goes on. It can go on for weeks or as yeah. long as months. But yeah. I do recommend you try to consult a physician right. uh, before you go on such things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just yeah. in case, um, in case they could find out something else that could be hidden as well. Right, exactly. And the thing with intolerances is that they're usually on a spectrum. So Mm -hmm. you could have a slight intolerance or you could have a drastic intolerance where you can't digest that particular food at all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, logic tells you, okay, if you only have a slight intolerance, if you eliminate it for a shorter amount of time, you'd probably feel better quicker. Versus if you had a very severe intolerance, you'd probably need to avoid it longer to notice any changes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like she said, a few weeks to a month or a couple months is probably appropriate. But intolerances are very hard to actually prove because symptoms like GI distress and headache are more subjective than symptoms like hive and hives and anaphylaxis, which are you you can see if someone's breaking out in hives or they're they're having anaphylaxis. You can't tell if someone's really having a headache aside from them saying, "Oh, I have a headache." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can we go out of either? Well, sometimes research isn't very clear, and interventions are very very individualized. Like for example, I was told <laughs> I'm not going to take his word 100, <laughs> but I was doing some research and I was. Basically, I was being told that you can actually train your body to produce more lactose if you did it slowly. But, of course, mm-hmm. that's very subjective. And you, I, I don't know. That's just like allergies and sensitivities are very tricky and mm-hmm. definitely not my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. I'll say that from like up front. Um, so again, it's very individualized. Consult your physician, consult, consult a dietitian if you're not mm-hmm. a dietitian, <laughs> mm-hmm. or at least a dietitian that has specialties in allergies or a doctor that specializes in allergies and sensitivities and whatnot. Cause I know right. there are such professionals out there. Yeah. And allergies are so, allergies are so difficult because it involves the immune system mm-hmm. and the immune system is very complex. Like the immune system is literally something that you start developing from the moment you're born. And all of our immune systems are so individualized because we've been exposed to different things as we grow. Do you think, so, I have a, huh? do you think a warm, breast milk versus formula milk 
plays a huge role in that. I vote. I I personally do. Yeah. And I mean, natural birth versus C-section birth plays a huge role too. Oh yeah. They oh, say yeah. you get, you know, so much of your mother's immune system through a natural birth versus oh yeah C-section. So. Mm-hmm. Because you go through the vaginal canal and picking mm-hmm. up all these bacteria versus if you go through a C-section, you don't have to go through anything. They just literally pop you out. And uh-huh. bacteria is a good thing. <laughs> that goes back to the hygiene theory. You know, we are so anti-germ everything, but they're okay. You actually have more bacteria in your body than actual cells. So you are basically an, you are basically like an ecosystem for bacteria. Which is a fun time. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. So moving on to what is a food sensitivity test. This is slightly different than allergy tests or um, intolerance tests. So this is this is uh, just copy and pasted from our, our results. I'm just going to read it. So it is important to note that a food sensitivity is different from a life-threatening food allergy. Food sensitivity is an immune response by the immunoglobin antibodies, which is the largest circulating antibody in our immune system, and it can cross the placenta from the mother to the child. There are many studies that suggest that up to 20% of the population may have sensitivities to certain foods and that these sensitivities can contribute to symptoms such as irritable bowel syndrome, headaches, insomnia, headaches again. (laughs) (laughs) More headaches. They, They have a typo. We should email them. Uh, certain types of arthritis, autism, ADD, ADHD, eczema, chronic ear infections, gut malabsorption, and many other chronic conditions. Identifying possible offending foods can be quite difficult since we eat so many different types of foods. Your test results can now guide you in the selection of foods that you can or should not eat. (laughs) So again, from the website, they say that it's not exactly an allergy test. They say, oftentimes people confuse the term food sensitivity and food allergy. What we test for is food sensitivity and food sensitivity only. Many people call the food sensitivity test a food allergy test, but when in fact the correct term is food sensitivity test. Food allergies differ from food sensitivities and are caused by the immunoglobin E antibodies and in some cases are considered life-threatening. The these are the types of allergies that you should consult with your healthcare professional about. Food allergies in many cases are known to also cause food sensitivities. So do not be surprised if you find foods that you're allergic to on your food sensitivity list. Ooh, that was a mouthful. Right. So they do give a nice little disclaimer about, you know, this is a food sensitivity test. It's not an allergy test. So basically... Uh, they give you your results and they tell you if you are highly reactive, moderately reactive, or if you have no reactivity to these food or environmental factors. And they also say, although the reactivity level may not correlate with physical symptoms, we do recommend starting an elimination diet plan around these results starting with the high reactivity foods and then moderate reactivity foods. So we purchased this we purchased a Groupon, okay? <laughs> for, <laughs> so for about twenty dollars. So we're like, why not? From the, the original, allergy- I was gonna what? say the original price was about eighty. So yeah, uh, yeah, okay. So twenty. 
We paid $20 for this allergy testing company. So we plucked out a few strands of our hair. I'm not going to tell you from where. We put them in a baggie. We sealed it in an envelope. And we dropped our DNA in the mail for them to see. And crossed our fingers that it was going <laughs> to go where it was supposed to. <laughs> that was such, it's so weird. It was such a weird, yeah, it's weird. But I'm assuming, well, they do... I'm not assuming they take your hair and they test it against these allergies or food and environmental factors and just see what your hair reacts to. Interesting. And they said they said hair from anywhere. So Yeah, yeah. Even if your hair is colored, it doesn't matter. It could be from your nose to your eyebrow to your butt cheek, I don't know. Well, they did they did say that it needed to be an inch long. Okay, then. <laughs> moving on. Moving on. Crickets. So, moving on. So, my results indicated that the foods that I am very reactive to are beans, which I was actually not surprised to see because I've been noticing over the past couple months that I do actually get a headache when I have beans. So, I am going to try... Uh, eliminating beans for not that I eat beans that often anyway but I'm gonna really uh, consciously avoid beans for about a month and then eat a lot of beans and see what happens so Hmm. reactive foods were beans grapefruit which I never eat lime which I do actually eat pretty frequently on tacos uh, crab which I rarely eat eggplant with which I rarely eat sardines which I rarely eat arugula which I rarely eat and then wild boar, I'm allergic, or I'm, I'm reactive to wild boar, which I never <laughs> eat. And then I'm reactive to red currant. I don't know what that is. It's, I, it's like a, it's like a, and it's like a little, right yeah, it's like a little, it's a little plant, right? It's a little berry. It's like, it's, it's part of the grape family, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, uh, actually, just kidding. It's part of the gooseberry family. Um, okay, that's actually pretty random because it's exactly. supposed to be a su- it's supposed to be a superfood right now. Really? Okay. Well, gooseberry is so the fact that it's in the okay. same family. I just okay. assume. Yeah, I've never had red currant, and I yeah, I mean wild boar and red currant. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> Looks so- like we need to go hunting, man. <laughs> right. So then um, the foods that I was moderately reactive to were oranges, walnuts, yellow dye 5, blue dye 2, and then sulfur dioxide. I don't really eat oranges or walnuts that often. Um, Sulfur dioxide, um, I'll talk more about that in a second. That's found in a lot of foods. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit. Um, and then yellow dye, yellow dye five and blue dye two. I mean, I don't, I think I don't, I don't really eat a lot of foods with dye in it. So that was, I I could see that. Um, and then moving on to the environmental reactivity. So these are the things that I had a high reactivity to that are environmental factors. So mosquito. So I guess some people get bit by mosquitoes a lot and some people don't. I am one of those people that I cannot recall the last time I've been bitten by a mosquito. 
And That's because you live in San Diego. I just got bit like 20 so, times yesterday. <laughs> yes, I do live in San Diego, so I don't get that problem a lot. But my family lives in the Midwest, and I grew up in Virginia and Tennessee. And I didn't even get bit back when I lived over there. So some, I've heard things about mosquitoes only go for you if you... I've heard if you have a certain blood type or you smell a certain way. I don't know, but... I don't it, get bit by mosquitoes. Perfumes just attract the shit out of mosquitoes. Really? Yeah. So, if you smell good, they're going to want to eat you. Well, maybe uh, I smell bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, another thing that I had high reactivity to was honeybees. And I've actually never been stung by a bee. So I don't know. I hope I'm not allergic to bees because that could be bad. But I used to eat a lot of honey, and the report wasn't very clear if it was, like, honey bees sting or honey bee, like, byproducts. So, I don't know. Hmm. I was also reactive to the Berlin beetle, <laughs> which okay. I don't know what that is. And then this was not a surprise to me. I had high reactivity to mixed grass pollens, mixed tree pollens, and then mixed weed pollens. And certain times of year, I definitely get really bad allergies. Fortunately, in California and San Diego, allergies aren't that bad. But if I ever go to, like, the Midwest during the springtime or summertime, I I get very congested. And then this last one was not a surprise to me at all. I do have high reactivity to sulfa um, amide, which is basically sulfa drugs. And I am allergic to sulfa drugs. I do get mild anaphylaxis, which also didn't surprise me when I had a moderate reactivity to sulfur dioxide, which is also found in like wines, like it's a preservative and a lot of cheaper wines and some mm-hmm. expensive wines too. But I can literally, if I taste a wine, I can know halfway through the first glass if I'm going to get a headache. Mm. So this was not a surprise to me. Obviously, there's something going on with my body that doesn't um, break down sulfa anything very well. And then I also do get hives from penicillin. So between the sulfa drugs, which are antibiotics, and penicillin, which is an antibiotic, and then sulfur, which is a preservative, something doesn't work right in my body with that. <laughs> so- Some of my feedback, a lot of it does make sense. And if you recall from um, earlier, we did mention why you might have an intolerance to certain things. And it's because you avoided it for a certain period of time. So, you know, going back to wild boar, red currant, sardines, eggplant, grapefruit, I don't really expose myself to those things which might mean why I had a stronger reaction when my, you know, hair follicle was heavily exposed to it. So something to think about. Mm. And then I was slightly expecting to see a reaction to apples because they do, I've noticed they make me cough and I get a runny nose, but this report showed no reactivity. So I'm going to have to, I usually eat like the green apples. So I'm going to maybe experiment with like red apples to see if it's all apples Mm. or maybe just something in... Basically making yourself suffer a little bit just to, for the sake of science. Just to, just to see. And then moving on to my allergy test, which I, I'm confused by my, uh, <laughs> by my results. So the most reactive foods that I got was 
The first one was artichoke. <laughs> I don't like it anyway, so I have no problem avoiding it. Uh-huh. And then lentil, which I was surprised to see because I ate a whole bunch of it growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a whole bunch, especially when, fa- when we lived in a little bit more money-scarce times. We ate lentils all the time, so I was confused to say see that because I never ha- remember seeing a reaction. Uh-huh. And, then, and then oranges, I used to eat literally two to three of them in one setting, probably um, almost every other day for I remember most of that. In <laughs> yeah, in college. So I, I, I think I was fine because mm-hmm. um, grapefruit. I really eat. Sometimes I have the juice. So okay. And then Dang, we're both highly reactive to grapefruit. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> we should try the grapefruit diet. Don't joke with me. <laughs> And then apparently I'm allergic to coconut, which I rarely eat unless it's somehow in some curry dish. It usually goes in my hair, so I don't care. Which is interesting that your hair had a sensitivity reaction to it. <laughs> oh, I know. It helps me from getting dandruff and it fit, like, leaves my hair soft as fuck. This is yeah. For, I'm also allergic, supposed to, I mean, not allergic, I'm supposed to be reactive to mushrooms, which... I fucking love mushrooms, so I don't eat it all the time, but when I do get it, I eat a whole bunch at one time, and then I go for a couple weeks and I eat a whole bunch, so I don't know. Yeah, same, same. Wasabi, I always eat it with my sushi, which I only go out to sushi like a couple handful of, handfuls of time throughout the year, so I don't know. And then apparently I'm allergic to orris root, which... I've never heard of this plant before. Apparently, orris root is supposed to be a fragrant rootstock of an iris. That you know, the iris plant. I'm yes. supposed to be. I'm supposed to be allergic to the rootstock of it. Well, stay away from it. What if I just want to grab and just rub it on my body? <laughs> I'm not gonna stop you. Okay. <laughs> so I'm gonna put it. Apparently, I'm reactive to that, and then I'm moderately reactive to egg white, which I eat all the time, especially now that I'm eating less red meat and poultry, and then I'm supposed to be moderately reactive to shrimp, which I eat pretty, I feel like I eat pretty regularly, so, (laughs) and then tuna, I used to eat like a wild child, wild (laughs) child, (laughs) and I don't eat it much right now, but I'm just I don't know why I'm seeing these things. Swordfish, I never eat. I will say red kidney beans, I do understand why I'm moderately reactive because I do get slightly gassy every time I eat it. And I used to eat it a lot when I was younger. Yeah. And then apparently I'm reactive to yellow number two, which I used to eat candy a lot when I was younger. So maybe. That explains a lot. <laughs> and then I'm supposed to be moderately reactive to purple paraben, which makes huh. me wonder. I I guess it's in some cosmetics, and I yes. I guess I should be more careful because some I do realize that sometimes when I put stuff in my face, my face gets a little bit more red and splotchy. Well, what I don't understand is why purple paraben is under the food 
factors, not the environmental. So I don't know. I, I looked up propylparaben and then it showed up on the cosmetics. So unless it's somehow in food, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. And then apparently I only got one environmental and that was the bumblebee. <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't get any moderately or low, low reaction, which is weird because I remember in high school, I didn't, apparently I was stung by a bee. Granted, I, I think it was more of a bumblebee, but I can't be 100% certain because I, I know it was some sort of bee, but I didn't even know I, I got stung until I looked, it was after school and I looked down on my bag and there was a dead bee. I was like, that's fucking weird. So I shook it off. Yeah. And then, and then I was like, why does my ankle hurt? And then I looked down and there was a black little needle sticking out. I'm like, you motherfucker. And I took it out and I was fine. Hmm. Like it went away the next, within the next couple of days. And I didn't even feel it. Maybe that was a honeybee. I I don't know. All the way. I'm not a bee expert, so I don't quite know the difference. If you, if any of you guys are bee experts, please. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think the bumblebees are the bigger ones. Oh, yeah, no, it's not bigger. It was, okay. like, it was a smaller one. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was probably a, not a bumblebee. I think the bumblebees are the the big ones. Oh, I hope it's not as big as the horseflies. Those fuckers are huge. It might be. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so, my feedback about this test is, all in all, I was very confused because I feel like it wasn't as reflective as my experiences. I was honestly hoping to see lactose in there because I I have difficulty consuming dairy. That's why I usually stick with the more fermented products such as cheese or yogurt. Or sometimes if I have to get milk, I'll get lactate. Uh, I drink a lot of milk when I was younger. And of course, I got super gassy and I was in a lot of abdominal pain. So I don't drink regular milk or I don't drink ice cream because they probably do have more lactose in it. I feel like I have some sort of intolerance, not a whole bunch, considering I can still tolerate cheese and yogurt, but that's because the lactose in that in those products are more broken down compared to milk and ice cream. So I was hoping to see that and not all these other random things. I was so right. confused. Right. And so the best way to really know if you have an allergy is to know if you are having like an immune response. So doctors or, you know, healthcare providers can do skin prick tests. They'll basically see if you're getting an immune response. If you think you have an intolerance, best way to check that out is elimination diet. And again, this test we did was a food sensitivity test, so it's not quite an allergy test. They tested our hair follicles, so a little bit, different, little bit different. <laughs> a little bit different. So, I mean, if it was $80, I wouldn't have spent money on it, that's for sure. Oh, exactly, exactly. $20? Sure. It's for science. <laughs> it's for science. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And last but not least, the new nutrition in the news. By the time this next next podcast comes out, it will be my birthday. So please give me a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful 
happy birthday, you know. That is true. Birthday's coming up. I'm getting old, man. All right. And then by the time this episode (laughs) airs, um, we will have our giveaway winner announced as well. So stay tuned. Congrats to the winners. We don't know who they are yet. (laughs) But keep your eyes peeled. Exactly. Okay. All right. That's all we have for you today. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Keeping It Juicy podcast. Your main squeeze in nutrition. Don't forget to subscribe so you can join us every Tuesday for a brand new episode. Also, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Keeping It Juicy Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Five stars, no less. On whatever platform you're listening to, or send us an email at keepingitjuicypodcast at gmail.com. Or if you have any topics you'd like for us to touch upon, shoot us an email. Until next time, don't do anything that I wouldn't do.